Welcome to the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brenda Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about enforcing structure on production. Are you interested in promoting practical experience in the operations, DevOps, and SRE spaces? We are. Consider sponsoring the Practical Operations Podcast. Contact us at sponsor at operations.fm for details. So naming things is hard, right? It's one of the, the classic, you know, the, that joke about... There's three the har- pro- hard problems in computer science. Naming things, off-by-one errors, and cache invalidation. Yeah, but you're not off-by-one on that one. Anyway. You're supposed um, to say two things, but... Damn, I missed it. <laughs> <laughs> but naming things is actually easier than designing and enforcing structure on anything really in production so be this your terraform project layout your ldap structure your acl system your kubernetes namespaces like all of these things which we're going to touch on in a little bit are hard to set up in the beginning correctly and if you do a bad job designing and setting them up you're going to have a lot of pain later on so and it seems like there should be good examples and best practices for doing this up front that we can, you know, crib from, but in a lot of these cases, there aren't. Yeah, I've been trying to come up with a Terraform project structure for work, and all I seem to do is find ones that I don't like. And in all the places I've been, there's been some reason or another I don't like the existing structure. Now it's my turn to set it up, and you know what? I can't come up with one I do like. Yeah, like having one huge Terraform project, bad idea. Having a bazillion tiny ones, bad, bad idea. idea. Yeah, I, I feel like you're. there's never going to be a good answer. Um, I think it's the one you're going to be the least upset with. Which is um, kind of the direction I'm heading in, which is just that is what what hurts the least and go that right. way. It, it, exactly. Um, because, yeah, I mean... You definitely don't want want a giant Terraform project. Um, there's a lot of pain in that. Uh, but again, like I mean, like Brendan said, I mean, you, especially if you're going to have a, a lot of tiny projects that are uh, Git based, to sit there and to deal with branches and uh, just uh. yeah. I don't mean to hawk a company, but the best Terraform setup I've really had the privilege of working with um, was from a company called Gruntworks. And they sort of specialize in selling you a pre-canned infrastructure so that you can just have your infrastructure, here's the Terraform for it, and you can get up a standard infrastructure and start deploying your your amazing microservice application that will change the world. So it's kind of like operations in a can, um, but they've worked really hard about trying to make some some standardized ideals for how to set up a Terraform structure for AWS and GCP that works well and works well for most uh, for most shops. And they've done a lot of work there and put a lot of thought and, and thought space into that. And that is where I would reach to, to sort of inform the decisions I would make about building a new Terraform-based uh, product or deployment. Uh, that said, um, some of the things that they have espoused I find really complex. And hard to manage, and especially when you're working with uh, a team that's that's widely dispersed or has different levels of of, of individual contributors. 
um, some of that gets kind of out of reach. Um, so there's things I really like about it and things I'm also super careful about. But I, I, I worked on that project with Jack, and I got to say that I really kind of like Gruntworks as well. They really had done a lot of, put a lot of thought into it and done a lot of work. And it, it, it sucked a lot less than other things that I've dealt with. Yeah. But it wasn't perfect either. And there were some issues and my, my biggest rub is I'm not even getting to start from scratch. The environment is already there. It was just built by hand. And now I have to lay something reasonable with Terraform on top. And starting with Terraform in port is never the most fun place to be. That's a lot of work, it turns out. <laughs> yeah, it's and, kind of like trying to adapt um, an existing database schedule into your like Ruby on Rails ORM model. Yeah. It's like, you can do it, but ugh. Yeah. And I have to say, this is where GCP lends itself better than AWS because um, even though AWS does have accounts, Projects in GCP just make a lot more sense for oh, grouping things together, and then it makes very it makes a lot of sense then to have a Terraform project per project per GCP project, and uh, it 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 just makes things really nice and organized. Whereas with AWS, it's it's a little or at least the way I have done it in the past has been more about uh, logical roles or, or higher level constructs and not necessarily per account. I like the GCP structure a lot. And I really think that when I'm deploying Terraform projects, I want to find, you know, a specific logical boundary. Like I do lots of observability stuff. I have a Terraform project for all the observability infrastructure I set up. And just to be able to break up those Terraform projects into workable logical chunks, that's not huge and sprawling. So you can't manage it. It's also not, you know, one Terraform project for, every single EC2 instance. And it kind of finds that logical boundary in the middle. But applying that AWS is, well, they want you to have an uh, account vending machine now. And the AWS folks are actually trying to turn that into a a feature they sell you to uh, set up your Terraform for AWS account best practices. And I'm like, this just makes it harder. So it's kind of like STS, but for Amazon, or for Amazon accounts instead of for yeah. user, user tokens, yeah. right? You okay. want an environment, you want a project, you just check out a new Amazon account, right? <sighs> yeah, I'm no longer doing a lot of, of observability work directly. I'm doing a lot more of what traditionally has been seen in the role of DevOps. So CI, CD, that kind of stuff. Everybody should sub- do observability. <laughs> well, everybody should also do observability, but I'm not running those tools anymore in the back end. I'm now running Jenkins and what have you. Um, and our separation generally falls along, you know, major service titles. So if you go into the documentation and you say, what is your CI pipeline, you know, package, what is your artifact storage, um, thing? That's our delineation for our GCP projects and for our, um, Terraform projects or Terraform, um, directories. So this lets us easily say, I'm making a change to the staging environment for the artifact repository system and it's in one project. It has one set of Terraform files. It's neatly packaged. So if a Terraform run goes badly, the blast radius is contained to just that staging environment. It doesn't kind of trickle into everything else. But we only have maybe 10 or 15 projects in total 
for the team to deal with, and that's really not too bad in terms of, and that, that includes Devin Prod and everything else. So that that gives us a nice way of rolling changes and not getting too crazy. That is a reasonable number. I one environment I worked in that did a lot of individual products had a problem with dependencies because most mm-hmm. of the projects were inheriting something from another project. But unless you go rerun that, you don't know that it affect you know a change upstream affected you. Yeah, the more you work with that model, the more you work toward, um, for example, using the uh, AWS Terraform modules that are open source. So you want to stand up an EKS cluster, you, know, you, you import that Terraform module. Okay, well, what version did you import? What Git hash did you reference when you're importing that standard yeah. module? Is that standard module provided by another team um, um, in your DevOps group or SRE group? okay, what happens when there's an update to that code that needs to get pushed out and how do you manage that? And then the story gets ugly. I mean, the only solution I've come up with for those is CICD, but, and maybe it's just a personal thing. The idea of changes getting made via a pipeline is terrifying because when that person checked in the wrong thing and now my database just got nuked, you know, oh, destroying RDS instances. You know, that's the type of stuff that makes me nervous. Yeah, now, I'm also at a back small that, that software deploy when I just deleted your database. Yeah. Now I'm also in a very small organization, so we don't have a lot of people with their hands in the code. As a matter of fact, we only have two right now. Um, so it, it you know, that's the best. <laughs> Count your blessings. <laughs> I'm not complaining about that side of it, but. There's way more than two people's worth of work, so there is that. So, um, but anyways, I I have resisted that whole you know apply on merge kind of thing for a long time with Terraform because it always it always scared me the idea that somebody else's change is going to blow it up. But currently, we we have recently turned it on for all of our projects and all of our environments, everything including the CI/CD pipeline, everything else. But it is contained in the sense that it is only looking for changes to Terraform files within its scoped project directory. It does not automatically trigger when, say, a module changes. So we know via when we're planning things out. So it doesn't change until we merge. It doesn't merge. It doesn't apply until we merge a change to our files, not somebody else's. And we always do a plan before we merge, just before we merge. So we see what changes are going to come at us. And when we merge a change, the apply runs and it actually works pretty well. And it alleviates a bunch of the documentation steps about this is how you get this particular kind of change into production. And especially since if you're changing a module that you're depending on, you've got to update the version that Git hash that you're referencing in your code to make that, change effectively that's you know, the issue of being able to push out updates oh yeah i don't use latest um, either but that means when you run it through your ci cd system that module only updates when you update that dependency yeah i, I don't use latest latest is a, a terrible terrible oh, pox God, upon no. our, our people again project structure um never use latest yeah yeah that, uh, I'm, I'm fighting that battle because right now we have three three branches master staging dev that are what you use effectively I, I, latest I don't love that for three categories 
And yeah, I used to at one time really like the 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 branch model, but I've come to really loathe it because I don't know, it's just it's too easy to mess things up and then yeah. you everybody on the team has to understand get to a level that not everybody on the team does. Unfortunately. Yeah. And then I mean, this and, and even there were some times where I had to be very careful because you, you you know, you don't I mean, if you don't care about history, then go at it. But when you want history <laughs> to be somewhat sane and preserved, it's actually very difficult to keep a long running multi branch uh get repository right and the, the, we have source control because we want history that's that's the whole point yeah so right. but this conversation because you want to roll back well yeah well but the, i think history is a big big thing too yeah, being able to see the development history of something is really important but this conversation about terraform projects reminds me of my other favorite pet peeve that people especially in the earlier part of my career not not naming dates um with LDAP or Active Directory structures, it's not a thing where you just say, oh, poof, I have an LDAP structure. Like an LDAP structure, a, a good one, is modeled after your organization. So you have to do a bunch of work to figure out how is my organization laid out? How do we how do we work? How do we operate? And it means that it's going to be custom for everyone if you do it right. And Terraform projects are some of that. Like you have to think about what you're doing. But LDAP and Active Directory and user account kind of stuff is so much more specific to how you work it's, how it's really operates. interesting because in our organization right now there's uh, i'm working on the infrastructure terraform and some other stuff and we're totally reorganizing from top down and we are abandoning our old ad tree and starting a new one because it was so bad and so messy that we can't continue and we're we're getting ready to switch to an AD, new AD tree, and and the, the other senior guy is that's his focus right now. And holy shit, the amount of work is to just take AD out. and throw it into the river. I mean, oh. come on. I mean, he's he's spending you know so much time talking to every business unit, coming up with their organization and their roles and what they need access to, and oh, and your org chart. Your effective org chart never matches the org chart on paper, therefore never matches the org chart you can build in a tree hierarchy. Yeah. Yeah, and how do you build a permissioning system and a group system and whatever else that actually meets your organization's needs rather than being like, oh, well, we have, you know, 50 employees and 395 groups. Yeah. <laughs> well, what? It's like, yeah, but we, there's these, these four special cases here, and then there's... Yes. I hate that. Yeah. But but again, I think this is going to be the same thing as with Terraform. There is there isn't a solution. Yeah. It's what's the least painful. Unfortunately, and there are consultants that get paid a lot of money to come in and, and build an AD structure for you. Like you, you can go pay good money to have somebody come in and consult the organization because a lot of it is the organizational research to figure out what is the right workflow for you. And well, that's, right, that's dragons. That's the way we're doing it. We're we're doing a lot of the legwork, but somebody else is feeding what needs to be, you know, the information they need. And then we do the legwork to provide it. Because My yeah. pet peeve is none of the cloud providers really have an LDAP slash AD slash Unix namespace service that shows any best practices or is simple to integrate or anything. So you can set up your... AWS user, you can set up all your IAM roles and whatnot, 
But as soon as you log into the machine, your your EC2 instance, you know, what do you got? You got you got nothing. You got did you provision your SSH key correctly? What what? And TCP's one login is the closest, but that's a seems to be a really common problem that we could solve relatively easily. Are you saying you don't like everybody just using EC2 user? Yes. Jack, get with the times. You don't log into machines. And they're, yeah, they're yeah, you don't log into the machines anymore. You know, using SSH is bad. <laughs> yeah, till, if you use SSH, yeah. then clearly your observability system is crap. And I get that. But Kubernetes also person, has you users. Feel bad. And everybody should not log in as system colon master. <laughs> oh, come on, live a little. No, just give them root. There, I've said my bit. <laughs> no, I, I agree with you. And, and OS login is is very nice and i i mean i i honestly don't know why other providers don't provide something similar it, it is the best of the bunch yeah well no if you're in azure and you're using a windows instance ad well, that's great right yeah <laughs> but i mean to be fair i mean i mean i'm gonna say this ad has been right for a long time um y- you know you you would go to the linux side of the house and y- yes there's open ldap but to get anything useful, you'd have to bring in these third-party uh, um, schemas that would actually set up a schema that was somewhat logical or what you wanted when you're like, wait, why is LDAP, Why does AD have all this built in? The schema story for uh, Unix users and managing users in LDAP has been horrible forever. Yep. Forever. Forever. And if you don't use, you know, 8125 BIS release 2 that somebody hid in the blog post, in some right. mailing list in 1938, uh, then your accounts don't work. And yeah, really frustrating. I mean, I remember setting it up years ago as, you know, I just, I had, I was running my own mail server. I was like, oh, I won't use this to be able to app, whatever. Just to get groups of groups working was a pain in the <laughs> Like, why is that so difficult? It shouldn't be hard. <laughs> and I totally, you know, made up those RFC numbers. So there you go. No, but I mean, I, I think, well, the, yeah, they're made up, but I mean, it sounded very similar. I mean, I remember finding what biz something, B-I-S dot blah, and it's like, oh, well, here's what I need to be able to do groups of groups, and anyway, it was... But it you're was not wrong. Yeah, from a those... mailing list that was archived in 1998. <laughs> the, the open LDAP, the overlays that did group of group stuff was never a fun experience to discover, and then you, you fall down the stairs, like, breaking your legs all the way down, trying to figure out exactly how to make the stupid thing work. Um, that was not a, a pleasant time of our tenure of our profession. Right. But yeah, I think that problem of user accounts on Linux machines, Unix machines at scale, or even, you know, Kubernetes clusters at scale is still very unsolved. No, it is. Unfortunately. And like people have taken taken runs at doing RBAC on systems, role-based, role-based access control. And Sun did a whole thing with Solaris 10 trying to get people to move off of using sudo and moving into using pfexec or something. And it still doesn't... People still never really moved over to it the, the way that it was intended by the we've system designers. We've got SE Linux, we've got AppArmor. Now everybody's <laughs> writing something eBPF to, to you know have fine-grained mandatory access control stuff. And yeah. But I mean, bigger picture, you go into Kubernetes, like you were saying a minute ago, and everybody has essentially root. And it's like, no, like there are namespaces in Kubernetes for a reason. There, there's a reason that you don't put everything into the same kind of pool. You, you segment things and you don't oh, come on people, but nobody listens. 
Yeah, I think similar along the lines, it it feels. I think the SE Linux analogy is kind of apt a little bit with um Kubernetes namespaces because I also see where, especially with the operator pattern, that yes, you can scope out permissions for the operator to only be able to create in these namespaces, or whatever. But generally, what I've seen in practice, or at least what I've seen in, in the things, has been uh, granting. 100% access to an operator, which probably isn't like the worst thing, but still for me, it's like, ugh, that feels very wrong. I mean, in that vein, like if you're digging through the AWS IAM pieces or the GCP policy, um, GCP's permissions and roles stuff, there is a huge nest of roles and permissions and grants that you can give. And if you don't spend the time to get it right, it's really tempting to just say, I'm just going to give you object viewer or ob- object admin and just you're done and you're fine. It works. Right. Rather than going through and saying, no, no, you need to be able to list the buckets. You need to be able to enumerate um, directories inside the buckets, but I only want you to actually be able to whatever put in these places. And taking the time to learn the tool correctly, a lot of us don't have that luxury. We don't, we don't have the extra hours to go learn a tool that is not really the core of our job. And so you got to pass on it, and then you wind up in these problems where things are sort of terrible. And, it's and so we learned better. the AWS or GCP or Azure uh, IAM or RBAC system, and instead of managing services as well, okay, you need a Kubernetes cluster. Here's just your Kubernetes cluster. You have read on it. Go away. And yeah, that's not that's not so good. Yeah, that doesn't always feel as comfortable as I would like. As I've been getting further on my project of trying to terraform an existing environment, the amount of permission of, oh, uh, this thing's doing something with EC2, EC2 star. And I don't blame them. The EC2, uh, the IAM rules and policies and roles, they have incredible fine-grained control if you take the time. But it is so hard, and the documentation is so hard, if you can find it for that role. It's, there's there's some times that I've felt so dirty because I've just gone, fuck it, colon star. I I can't figure out what this needs. But I mean, in your defense, Amazon has what, 400 services they offer now? Yeah. And they all have interdependent IAM chains of policies and access you have to set correctly? And a lot of folks are just like, I, I don't know. I'm just sure it's fine. Yeah. I, like, no, I it, saw it, one talk. They said there's over a hundred thousand individual IAM permissions that you can set. I totally I, believe that. Yeah. Damn. Okay. I no longer feel bad. That I can't remember which IAM bit I have to throw. Yeah. It also reminds me of, um, I, I, I don't do this as often as I probably should. Um, at least on my personal network, but back when I did at least manage some aspects of a network, uh, I would try to do deny all on like the prod network and either have things go through a proxy or then explicitly allow certain ports. But that can be very painful, especially if things are not very uh, friendly where they, you know, they, they need dynamic ranges inbound and, and things like that. And I just know that sometimes that can be frustrating as well, where it feels like you're just, you're, you, you you keep playing whack-a-mole where you're like, okay, I've been, I've been this port. Now I need to go do this. Now I need to do this. Yeah. And ugh. 
and then multiply that by a whole team. Well, it's the new hotness and everything is on 443 now because everything is a, you know, a web <laughs> API, even though it's not really speaking anything that you could see over the wire as clear text that looked anything remotely like a REST call. But everything's now on that port because it's always open everywhere. So now right. the game is, now you have to do, you know, service to service, individual, you know, mutual TLS authentication, and you have to have access control rules and you have to specify these things. And it's, it's yeah. even uh, less observable than IP tables or UFW Jared, or whatever. what is your problem against HTTP2 and gRPC? <laughs> uh, actually, you know, I really need to learn that stuff. And, and I've been, I, I, w- I won't say that I've been like uh, hesitant, but it's like I, I can actually understand HTTP, but the whole HTTP2 stuff and everything, I just I've, I haven't even really... Under, un, t- taking the time to understand it and i know that now like it's been more popular right like, like for the earliest time i remember here you'd hear about http 2 and all this stuff but it it, it it seemed like it wasn't that big but now i guess everybody's using it i haven't needed it yet honestly i yeah. keep on expecting to have to learn it and then i'm like okay when i get to it when when it's a need i'll learn it and i haven't right. needed it yet and i'm i'm worried that that's going to disadvantage me at some point but and so in a lot far, of cases uh if you're using uh, load balancers from Cloudflare or AWS or whatever, you just negotiate the HTTP protocol and you get the latest one that both sides support and off you go. And you don't yeah, so, tell the difference. Right. But I know that there is some performance gains from going HTTP2. And I know that, you know. And there's some it, features as well. Right. And gRPC is HTTP2 only, I believe. Um, so I know I had lots of fun with similar issues. Because I had to get HTTP2 and gRPC stuff working with AWS load balancers, and they support this. But you also have the the Kubernetes controller also has to support those features on those AWS resources. And if the planets aren't aligned, your application doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, an- another area of this whole enforcing structure on production stuff is how do you design an application architecture now to be reasonable and understandable but still use you know the kubernetes controllers and whatever caching layer you're using and whatever hosting provider bandwidth cdn crap you're using and all of the other tools you need for you know microservice access and all the other things getting a reasonable application architecture laid out that is usable and has structure that makes sense and doesn't lead people to madness is really hard y'all have any advice advice on that one no. Drink heavily. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I, I don't. That's true. Yeah, I, f- I find that if somebody can't put together a quick flowchart diagram of how the auth works, like or how a user request flows through the system, regardless of who the user is, being a user on the internet somewhere or one system calling another, if you can't put that into a flowchart relatively quickly or on a whiteboard or whatever... And it, and it takes either multiple charts or, okay, now all of this stuff, and then we're going to race this board, and we're going to, that goes into this one little box here, and now we're going to do a bunch of other boxes. That's when you've gotten into a bad place. And um, that's what microservice architecture really allows, is yeah. Yeah, if, if you're not, complexity and sprawl, and you quickly get to the point where no one can draw that picture. Yeah, right. You have to be really careful when you're rolling up microservices not to just say, 
well, I mean, we had one monolith before, and now we have 800 microservices, and they all talk to each other somehow. It's like, no, 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 stop, back up. Because that is a recipe for absolute madness, and your documentation essentially always being out of date, or the documentation being, yeah, just go look at the running code and see what it's doing. Yeah, the code is self-documenting, don't you know? Oh, God. And other lies we tell ourselves. Yeah. We already did that episode. I mean, I think the 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 best part of what you what you just said about it is if if you can't draw it easily, there's no way you can lay it out sanely because you've got to put those boundaries in reasonable places, and they go with the structure because as you're you know as you draw it out, that's when you can see those boundaries, and if you can't draw it out sanely, there's no way you can put boundaries around the. It just doesn't work. Absolutely, it is amazing as I you know, we, and this totally goes. Out of, off, off the deep end as, as far as the subject goes. But with remote work, we've we've come back to the office and being able to whiteboard with peers. Oh, God, I didn't realize how much I missed being able to say, no, 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 come here. Let me draw it out for you. I no. really, oh. as a remote employee for some number of years now, way before COVID, I always really valued that time when I could be on site with a client or be on site with my, with where I worked and that high bandwidth communication, we can actually sit yeah. down and plan and kind of get all that stuff put together and be able to look you that six months, 12 months in the future of, of what are our goals? What do we need to do to accomplish this? Okay, break. Let's go and accomplish this. Yeah. I'm the only native English speaker in my group in the, in, in the department. And the language barrier the, the in the Netherlands, everyone speaks English, but it's not their first language. And the number of things that get solved with a whiteboard and a marker that are almost unsolvable via audio only is insane. So we do a lot of video chats at work right now. Um, and I will commend my team that they are astoundingly good at documentation and informal um, presentations about whatever topic like hey you wanted to learn about the, art the artifact repository great let me throw together a quick presentation we'll talk about it it's got diagrams in it so we can something we have on a shared screen we can refer to and then we take notes in either google doc or whatever so we can we can capture the questions that people had very easily i am really amazed impressed and very delighted that my team is able to function um, this well, and I know that some of this came out of COVID, but it is, I also miss the whiteboard, but I'm finding that I'm relying on it, on that, that need for an in-person meeting a little less than I used to. Um, I may sing another tune when we, we actually get the team together for the first time in person in what, <laughs> two or three years. I don't even know at this point, time has lost all meaning. <laughs> yes. COVID yeah, does that. Even though I've been a, or, or I've been remote as well for a number of years at this point, and I've been a proponent of remote work even before that. But even when I was, you know, pushing for that at the previous places I've worked for, there's always been a a carve out for either a monthly, uh, quarterly, whatever get together for the team to be able to sync up. And then previously, when a lot of my team has been in the same region. Be like, look, let's just stay remote. But then if there's a day where we all need to get together, we just 
we pick a coffee shop or we go somewhere and we meet physically together and and hash over it. Um, so I, I don't think, or you may meet some people like that, but I, my recommendation has been try to be remote as often as you can. And then if you need to, get together. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll report back sometime in 2022 about you know what it's like to be in person again. I think, I hope. <laughs> yeah, we hope. As of uh, this coming week, we are now three days in, two off, two remote. With the we would prefer you five, but we're not forcing it. So, yay! I for... definitely know folks that work locally that are getting the message. You're now required to be at the office. X days a week. And I am glad that I am permanently remote uh, <laughs> with my current uh, opportunity, but I, I'd be kind of scared to, at least with where I am and where COVID is, where I am, um, having to be forced to go into an office two or three or four times a week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and coworkers. We would also appreciate folks taking the time to rate the show in Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you'd like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm or send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm. And that wraps it up for this episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. Thanks, and good night. But I wanted to complain about package management in Golang. <laughs> 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 patience, patience. <laughs>